0: That's heritageradionetwork.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit wholefoodsmarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network.
2: You're listening to Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coral Lee. Parlor Coffee's founder, Dylan Edwards, is here with me to re-examine what really makes a good cup of coffee. We'll be talking about the cross-cultural journey beans take when going from producer to roaster, what it means to stay honest as a sourcer, and how businesses can serve their communities responsibly. Thanks for joining me today.
3: Thank you, Coral. Thanks for having me.
2: So, Parlor Coffee actually started in a barber shop, right?
3: That is correct. We started in very humbly on a counter about four feet long in the back <laughs> of a barbershop in Williamsburg.
2: And where are you located now?
3: We run our operation out of an old carriage house at the north end of Clinton Hill, across from the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And uh, yeah, that's where we, you all are roasting, and we open to the public once a weekend for tasting room hours.
2: So I read that um, New York Times article on the barbershop cafe trend, and that kind of got me thinking about all these other combination business trends. Like what well, it's almost like one form of entertainment or stress relief isn't enough. Um, what do you think about that?
3: I think it's, that is just a, uh, to me, that is just a natural evolution of retail.
1: Hmm.
3: I think that, you know, when, when I started parlor in the back of the barbershop, it wasn't by, uh, some great, um, you know, some, some, long thought decision it was a desire to bring my coffee and bring my brand to the world and with New York real estate being what it is and with uh, the audience being there where I, I saw it in Williamsburg it only made sense to, to sort of piggyback another business and, and really not have to go through the trouble of signing a 10-year lease on day one
2: mm-hmm. was it a barbershop specifically or did it just happen to be one
3: the barbershop had already existed for about a year when we opened up our coffee counter in the back.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I was reading the article, it was really um, kind of, I thought it was really cute and funny how they were like, this is the new community center for men. Like, this is how men can, you know, unwind, get a haircut, and get a cappuccino as well. And I think that, like, it's like almost the male equivalent to a nail salon or something. Sure, yeah.
3: (laughs) It's funny that that sort of took off. It seems that there have been many other barbershop, coffee bar combinations since. I can't take too much credit for it, though.
2: (laughs) And you said you're in Clinton Hill, right? Yeah. So I used to go to school there, and even... I had my one shop that I really liked, but even though I really liked it, I found it really hard to return to the same one mm. because there are just so many on every corner, even on the same block. So, how do you, or how does Parlor compete in a city, let alone a neighborhood, so saturated with coffee shops?
3: It's a good question, and and it, it yet it doesn't quite um, it match up to the type of business we operate. We really don't rely on foot traffic or on day to day customers at our roastery. Mm. We're primarily a wholesaler. So we work okay. with, with restaurants and cafes across New York City and then across the country even we ship out coffee as far as the West Coast, Canada, Mexico City. Um, so the, by and large, the, most people that are coming to visit us are our local accounts. Hmm. So people who run cafes in Brooklyn and Manhattan and, um, and the baristas that work there to come see our site do training, do education, learn about our process, learn about our coffees. And and then we do open our doors once a week for tasting room hours, but it's it's really just, um, it's almost like a factory tour, hmm. if you will.
2: And you just got back from a trip to Columbia, right?
3: I did, I was there in January uh, for about a week, and it was the fourth time I've been to the same little town called Acevedo, Frontier Town, down in Southern Huila.
2: And what do those trips look like? like? How, what kind of planning goes into those <laughs> trips? Uh, what do you do on these trips?
3: Great question. Uh, the, the trips have evolved a lot over the years. Colombia, specifically is something that is really familiar to me at this point. Um, a couple flights from New York down to Bogota, from Bogota to, uh, a, if, if you're lucky, there are only three flights a week that go to a town called Pitalito. And if you time it right, you can get that flight, which saves you about a six hour drive. Whoa. Even when you land in Pitalito, you still have about an hour and a half to get to Acevedo by truck. So I usually try to (laughs) condense (laughs) it as much as I can now. Mm. I've seen the same mountains and the same rivers a few different times. And it's it's always beautiful, but I try to make my time as efficient as possible. So typically... uh, you know, quite a bit of a whirlwind to get down there, and then when you arrive in Acevedo, for example, um, it's a very remote location. It's a very uh, um, by by Colombia standards, it, it's 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 relatively undeveloped, and a lot of the uh, <laughs> a lot of the, the the happenings of town are really happening in a four block radius. Uh, there's only one hotel. The hotel only has ice cold water (laughs) that runs from the mountain. And usually we're eating meat, eggs and rice and starch for the entire week. We're there three times a day. So it's, it's a bit of a jarring, um, experience, but it's always really humbling because the producers that we work with there are so dedicated to quality and the initial impression you get of arriving to this sort of frontier town just is, is the complete opposite of the warmth and the, the the craftsmanship of the people that we work with.
2: Yeah. Um, so why why Acevedo? How did you find that place? And Or why did you, it sounds like quite sure, the track to yeah. get there, so how do you return there again and again?
3: Sure, um, why Acevedo? Uh, we were introduced to that region Really, from our former green coffee buyer David Stallings, who's a former colleague who I respect so much, he um, he was working for an importer at the time, an importer we work with called Collaborative Coffee Source, and they were focusing on some emerging uh, opportunities to work with exporters that we had heard about and and we had we had wanted to work with for years. Um, the exporter that they identified is a is really a one-man band a, a man named Alejandro Renjifo who has an incredible history in Colombia he's he's sort of an old dog there and he used to work for well it's, it, there are a lot of details to his story but he's been in that industry and he's really a Colombian uh, uh, figurehead of coffee who's been in that industry for probably four or five decades um, So Alejandro has different producers throughout Colombia that he's developed relationships with. And oftentimes in Colombia, especially producers will be in cooperative groups or they will work uh, at least with one central point where their coffee is sold. Um, In his case, he developed a relationship with some of the producers there in, in Acevedo and he himself decided to fund his own collection point. So really for us as a roaster, those types of developmental uh, steps are are steps that we ourselves cannot take. We really add value in roasting and highlighting and trying to be good customers for those exporters and importers, and then ultimately try to showcase the producers' work who are the r- original craftsmen and craftswomen of these products.
2: Sorry, you just, you said you can't take these steps yourself. Is it because um, it's just impossible, just physically not possible? Oh, uh, sorry.
3: Or? Yeah, I didn't mean it's 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 not something we can or cannot do. It's just something that we've found. It, it has made more sense in the last five years that we've been a company as we've been scrappy and, and bootstrapped and trying to build a business in Brooklyn to find people who have years of experience and years of knowledge of the, in, of the industry or of the region or of the, the, the producers. I mean, Alejandro, for example, has had this relationship with these producers for many years before myself. So when I go there, I've become, you know, I've become like family to some of these producers. But really, I wouldn't be there if it were if it weren't for him. And uh, as you can imagine, I couldn't just drive around Colombia <laughs> waving around saying hi. I'm a coffee buyer. I'm
2: here <laughs> to buy uh, all your coffee. Yeah, I
3: mean, it's it's not something we're we're doing. We're we're looking to find sustainable. Uh, relationships, and usually that comes with some infrastructural support, people that have been involved, or people that have have developed um, developed the opportunity to begin with.
2: And what opened Alejandro up to working with you? I, I imagine, you know, he's built this for decades, um, kind of this empire on his own, and then it, I imagine it's some a bit hard to give up the reins or to open it up.
3: Well, Alejandro, absolutely, you're right. I mean, people tend to be fairly protective of their relationships um, but ultimately for Alejandro I mean Alejandro is someone who, who does what he does really for I, I believe, I sincerely believe he does it for passion and his passion for the producers more than um, more than money. Mm-hmm. He's he's really kind of getting up in his years and he's he's someone who's, who's just spent his whole life in this industry, studied economics, he did all of these things that are great accomplishments and when I'm traveling with him I really recognize that he, he does this to to elevate these people and and to celebrate them and if if a buyer like myself, like Parlor Coffee, wants to wants to help him he's he's happy to sell us coffee mm-hmm. and he's happy to make those introductions. And I might have been a little bit of a pushy customer at times, <laughs> wanting to wanting to take some ownership over the relationship from time to time, but he's been very amenable.
2: And so from this emerged um, what the Acevedo Cup, which, which is something I guess you're kind of known for here. And so what is that? Um, what went into that? And yeah.
3: Sure. So that was really co-sponsored by the importer I, I mentioned earlier, Collaborative Coffee Source, and uh, an Alejandro's company, Fairfield. Um, the the vision there is, and this is something that is really quite um, you, you'll see other importers do this this type of thing uh, these types of sort of quality competitions throughout different regions. The idea is really to just sort of send a signal to a community that there are buyers who are interested in really special coffees and the best way to really send a clear message to the community about the value of those coffees is to is to say, hey, we're going to pay a really hefty premium over our, our already um, you know, higher baseline price to um, for the top the top lot of this season, and for the second lot, and for the third lot, and for four through 10, and for 11 mm-hmm. through 20. And there will be a blind panel, and there will be multiple cuppings, and there will be multiple tastings over the course of several days, and we will take this very seriously. And, and the producers... Really respond to that. They, this all
2: happens while you're there. Yeah. You know, in this week long trip. Yeah. So it's crazy.
3: Yeah. It's very, it's very busy. Um, we just actually were doing the second Acevedo Cup this past January, which was a fantastic experience to be there again and, and to cut the coffees. And, um, you know, there were some producers that we've worked with, or a producer that we've worked with, who, who had a, a, repeat, uh, a repeat successful streak in the hmm. cup. And, there were some new producers we identified through the process, so we'll be looking forward to meeting them this summer and going back to to shake hands. Because the, the the awards were announced at the very end of the trip, and we literally jumped on a bus right afterwards.
2: So, so sorry to backtrack. If yeah. I'm understanding correctly, it's like kind of like American Idol, but of coffee. So people, these farmers are bringing you their like their best coffees, and then one is selected and will be featured, basically. Yeah.
3: So let me try to let me try to paint a better picture for you. So. You know, I would almost liken it more to to, to sort of like a, a fair, right? So, you, it's it's not meant to be overly playful at all. I mean, it's mm-hmm. really, it really is uh, a way to to one to collect more interest because the reality is a lot of the coffee producers that we work with are really just producing coffee to pay for their living. Hmm. Just like you and I do what we do to pay for our living. They are too, and the types of people that we'd like to work with, uh, Alejandro's a great example, oftentimes make a point to pay a higher uh, price for coffee to ensure that certain quality benchmarks are met by the producers, but also to um, create what they feel is a more sustainable relationship with those producers. when the competition happens, it's it's a bit like a orchestrated event by the exporters. The exporter, Alejandro, actually has at his um, sort of collection point in town in Acevedo, he has a couple of employees who live there full time. So they're able to visit with producers throughout the year. They're able to communicate things, news, updates, price changes, things like that. and what happens is they basically go out into the community and say, we're going to do this event. This is when it's happening. Mm -hmm. Be sure at the end of harvest to submit your best coffees and we will diligently screen them and we will bring buyers from all over the world and we will taste them together and, and taste them blindly without any influence of the producer name or of the Hamlet or wherever it came from, just knowing that they're from this general region and, that panel will ultimately decide what are the top coffees of the season. So to compare it to American Idol, it's not, it's not, I would say it, it, you could, (laughs) you certainly could, but, um, the, uh, you know, the, the event is, is, is a little more serious because these producers really are trying to understand what makes their coffees great. And it's only beginning to be a reality with certain a certain small handful of them
2: that was incredibly interesting i I think not very many people know about that or will ever know about that. Um, whether I'm going to a cafe that says like, "Oh, this is a special coffee from Ethiopia or like this is a coffee that's fair trade, you know like we see all these buzzwords and mm-hmm. are just kind of think like, "Okay, I guess this is a good cup of coffee, and right. so this is these aren't things that I, the typical consumer, would even begin to imagine
3: you're absolutely right and, and unfortunately most consumers uh are are really relying on i uh, what am i trying to say most consumers are are unfortunately dealing with the reality of being very busy and going through their day-to-day life mm-hmm. and not sitting there and studying each product that they consume um, but fortunately with coffee roasters have really really embraced the idea that they should celebrate the origin the producer and the and the, the the history and the source of the coffee and that's and that's made some sort of information available for for the consumer to sort of dig into
2: so this is purely for selfish reasons um, <laughs> what would you or what are some tips you would give to you know, because you go to Whole Foods and there's sure. like the Whole Foods beans and they're like, oh, these are roasted today and they're fair trade. And you look for these words and you think they're good and you like give it a whiff. and You're like, mm, yeah, light roast. That's probably good for my pour over. So how would you give kind of the novice coffee enjoyer tips on how to navigate the coffee aisle?
3: It It is very overwhelming at first. I, I remember first trying to understand coffee as a teenager and, and, and coming from, from rural like a outside of nashville it was just a drip coffee maker and your whatever eight o'clock coffee every morning Mm -hmm. so nothing traceable nothing you know nothing tied to the origin Mm -hmm. or anything like that and i myself also felt just completely overwhelmed by the information and and really the branding a lot of Mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of coffee is tied to italian roast or these european buzzwords and then there's there's, there's the full gamut of, of information out there that can really n- confuse a lot of the the sort of uh, layman consumer. Um, just to give a starting point, I mean, I would think, I would, I would really recommend if someone's really interested in, in exploring coffee is to try to understand the first link in the chain that they are closest to, which is their roaster. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if, if you can identify a roaster that's roasting coffee fresh and has good practices for the roasting process, you can sort of explore the world of coffee through their lens. Mm-hmm. And maybe as you start to form a baseline, uh, sense of the information, you can kind of compare and contrast with other, with other roasters and, and sort of explore different perspectives that way. Um, certain roasters, roast a vast variety of coffees and really showcase different origins quite well. And I think that's the first starting place. It's really hard. I wish I could give you some better advice, but ultimately a good starting place is to find a roaster that you can really understand is roasting coffee fresh. You can understand that the coffee is freshly roasted and is sourced with intention and maybe with some sort of active boots on the ground kind of involvement. Usually that is a good sign that at least the roster is interested in, in, in the traceability mm-hmm. and, and understanding what's going on in the supply chain.
2: can you define traceability?
3: I don't know that I can I mean ultimately we we've really we've really 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 shied away from that word um, as much as we can because it is so uh, <laughs> it is so overused when mm. it doesn't really match up to what's going on. Um, in our in our vision for traceability would really be being able to connect every person who drinks a cup of coffee to how that coffee was grown, how that co- what what the price paid to the producer was for that coffee, and what it costs to then take it from that point forward to the cup that they're holding. And that day unfortunately seems like it's going to be a little ways off Mm. um but i think as we continue to make efforts and, and 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 really continue to try to celebrate producers i think we we will see uh see that that vision come closer
2: i'm speaking with founder of parlor coffee dylan edwards meant to be eaten we'll be right back after a short break Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival.
3: We are here live today at Charleston
1: Wine and Food.
2: Join us as we talk all things food.
1: Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with
0: chorizo
2: steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes.
0: So quintessentially like Southern fare. At its finest. And have important conversations.
1: We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about.
2: We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. <laughs> uh, I, 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 was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with chef Sean Brock.
3: It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to
2: find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris.
1: Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks.
0: So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org
2: or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. And we're back. This is Meant to Be Eaten. I'm joined by Dylan Edwards, who's the founder of Parlor Coffee. And we were just talking about um, traceability or trying to define traceability in coffee. Um, Is just the loose idea of that um, understanding where your coffee comes from in the very, like, slow food, trendy way? Is that what traceability means, being...
3: I don't, I don't think that lives up to the real ideal that traceability as a word kind of exudes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think really understanding the price paid, really understanding the cost to produce a pound of coffee,
1: mm-hmm.
3: which is something that we ourselves are still uh, studying and still trying to, to, to wrap our heads around. We actually had a producer that we've worked with for a couple of years now just submit a full report on what, their cost to produce a carga, which is the sort of their metric of of volume in Colombia, uh, is and it's it's inc- incredible to just have that finally for the first time from a producer show us this is what I spent on my pickers, this is what I spent on my drying beds, this is what I spent on washing the coffee. All of those things are are things that people I don't think uh, are are aware of and, and, and certainly not understanding the price price that it costs to produce is, is just a huge missing link. Because if you, you can say, oh, we paid this price, but what does that mean? Mm -hmm. What does that mean to the farmer? And, um, I think that's, that's one of the big hurdles we really have to jump before we can truly live up to the idea that this is a traceable product.
2: Yeah, so you were saying it's kind of a big deal that you finally got this number. Um, Why is it so hard to get this number usually? Is it uh, kind of no one thinks to document these things or just the buyer usually doesn't care about these things?
3: It is a combination. I mean, I think that there aren't enough people on the buying end and on the importing end and the exporting end asking those questions and saying, what does it really, really cost you to produce it? It's oftentimes the same kind of conversation we unfortunately have, you know, as as a roaster is the customer wants product and oftentimes wants it at the lowest, the lowest price possible. Um, So that is the inherent challenge that that usually gets in the way. Uh, But when people are willing to have a dialogue, it is it is really necessary for the producer to be diligent and to study what they're doing. Because if they don't, then they won't really know what it costs to produce.
2: Yeah, um, I was reading this article by Jennifer Wilkins, who's a food writer, and she said, um, food citizenship is the practice of engaging in food-related behaviors that support rather than threaten the development of a democratic, socially and e- economically just and environmentally sustainable food system. So would you define those standards alone as what makes a good cup of coffee?
3: Can you read it again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll do it slower, (laughs)
2: too. Um, Food citizenship is the practice of engaging in food-related behaviors to support rather than threaten the development of a democratic, socially and economically just, and environmentally sustainable food system.
3: Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that that captures the spirit of what we hope to achieve, especially, you know, this producer that submitted this paperwork. We're trying to buy as much coffee from her as possible. And sometimes even more than we think we can we can sell (laughs) um, because we want to work with her for years to come she has presented this information to us she hasn't asked us what our ceiling is (laughs) she's just said here you go here's exactly what it cost Um, and if she were if she were not free to just run her farm the way she is running it and free to just openly put that number out in front of us we wouldn't even be taking a step towards this mm. this ideal um, but she is and that is a good thing
2: yeah you also said um something which a lot of people i know don't like to admit to but definitely do is we just want cheap fast coffee mm-hmm. um, when we like there's you know that the, the ubiquitous dunkin donuts huge cup of coffee and like no one needs that much caffeine mm-hmm. but like how are those cups of coffee being sold for two dollars and you know it obviously makes it a little hard for people then to stomach the, paying four or five dollars for quote-unquote cold brew or you know this right. artisanal coffee
3: there's tons of noise in the retail space which i think makes it really difficult to <laughs> just to, to to convince people when you are saying, you know, really this cup of coffee should be, or this bag of coffee should be three or four times what you would expect to pay. Um, and oftentimes that's just to make it proper price. Uh, but the, the conversation does need to, to, to be had and it still needs to be pushed for. And unfortunately those really, really, really cheap cups of coffee, don't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon. And that is just the reality of the current moment. People are changing slightly, though. That is the beautiful thing, is un- unlike the 50s, we are hyper-aware of micro-roasters trying to celebrate producer relationships. So the opportunity has never been better to to sort of leverage that.
2: Yeah, It also um, I feel like it's very American to wear a cup of coffee like an accessory, kind of like, look, Mm -hmm. I'm this crazy hard worker. Like, let's take a coffee break together Mm -hmm. um, to refuel and kind of recharge our intellectual exchange. Um, Whereas in Europe or maybe other places, like, oh, let's unwind and have a coffee break. Mm -hmm. And so at Parlor, do you encounter one customer more than the other?
3: Well, one thing I can say, I mean, like I said before, we have such a limited retail component to our business but we have studied it quite a bit and even all the way going back to the barbershop we've always created destination coffee shops Mm. they have been unlike any other coffee shop by and large Uh, our barbershop location for example you had to physically walk through what I used to laugh and 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 agonize over the gauntlet of barbers (laughs) trying to cut hair to get to our product and to get to the barista, and lo and behold, people would do it, and sure, it wasn't a line out the door, but there were people that were dedicated that sought out our product, some of them were regulars, to get what we presented, and oftentimes, it was a combination of factors, but we had really created an atmosphere of appreciation and of slow coffee that came out of the uh, the space itself. With our roastery, we kind of have a similar thing because we're just in a sort of uh, what they call a transit desert. There's not really a subway anywhere <laughs> near what nearby, and 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 down by the Navy Yard, there isn't that much going on yet. So people really have to 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 come seek us out, and when they do, they're usually trying to sit down, drink multiple cups of coffee, ask tons of questions about the coffees they're drinking. <laughs> Um, and and usually they want to walk walk out the door with a couple of different beans to try home
2: at mm. home. Yeah, actually, I never thought about that, but um, the more sit-down-enjoy-your-coffee places are generally in the same area, where you, you, like, walk, and you kind of stroll, and you shop, and you, like, are encouraged to sit down, whereas the more, like, Dunkin' Noah stuff are, like, on the side of the 278, or, like, right. yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think what you're really hitting the nail you're really hitting is that coffee has just been historically, unfortunately, a big part of coffee consumption has been about fueling, fueling our minds, fueling our energy. And that isn't going to change. People are going to continue to drink coffee for, for its caffeine. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think what we are trying to do, and I think, you know, part of the the sort of greater revolution of roasters out there trying to do the same thing is, is to drive coffee a little bit off of that track of just being a a caffeine delivery mechanism and more towards a a good force for uh, livelihood, connecting livelihood to a lifestyle that is about appreciating great food.
2: Hmm. And so this kind of builds off of that. What do you think is the correct or, um, I guess, responsible way for a restaurant or a coffee shop to represent coffee? I think one
3: of the biggest things that a coffee shop and a restaurant, and I I say this very humbly because I know how hard it is from first hand experience to run a business in a city like New York. Oftentimes restaurants and coffee shops are, are under enormous pressure from so many different directions to succeed. And they, they look at every opportunity they can to, to make money or to, to, to make service more quicker more quick. Um, what, what I would say is the simplest way to, to really change people's perspective is just to highlight at least where coffee is from. Mm-hmm. If it's a blend, ask your roaster what's in that blend. Which coffees are making that blend taste the way it does? Uh, if it's a single-origin coffee, ask your roaster about for some information on that coffee and, and highlight that. And even if it's... Uh, you know, a one line fact that you're giving to your servers to just have on hand if someone's curious, it at least opens the door ever so slightly to that day to day consumer into that world that we're hoping to really to usher forward, Mm -hmm. which is the world where people are cognizant appreciators of the source of their coffee. Mm
2: -hmm. Not just fuel, but like, oh, this is much more than that this
3: is much more than that this is uh, someone's livelihood this is something Mm -hmm. that took a lot of work craftsmanship and uh, patience to 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 create and and ultimately it didn't stop with just the producer but also if it was roasted well with the roasters as well
2: and um, we kind of started with this but what keeps you working in coffee um why why did you get into it in the first place and what keeps you going to Columbia?
3: <laughs> well, um, a few different questions, but I, I, I find myself um, very happy to remain in coffee for the time being. It's a very exciting time. It's a very interesting time. I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to um, twist my arm to, to, to go across the world and, and meet interesting <laughs> people and spend time enjoying their culture and trying to connect with them. Um, so that is certainly one big perk of the business. Um, but really, it does feel it does feel very satisfying to feel like we are changing food. Even if we're playing this ultra small part of it, we're trying to change it we're trying to change it with respect to environmental stewardship at origin, encouraging better environmental practices. We're trying to um, change it with the way that, our wholesale partners, restaurants, cafes, etc., are serving that coffee, mm. talking about that coffee, and we ourselves are trying to impart a roasting style on every coffee we roast that highlights the sweetness and the inherent qualities of the beans themselves at their fresh, uh, their peak of freshness, rather than just mask them with a really, really heavy roast that is is sort of muting all of the things that are special about that origin.
2: So you you were saying. Um At parlor, you're really training the people who are, or at least educating people that are buying your coffee, um, you know, what they can tell customers and what is the responsible customer to do when consuming coffee. I mean, I guess we talked about it a little bit before, but a little less abstract. Like, if I were to go to the store to maybe decide to not just want fuel, I want to actually think a bit more about my coffee, what what should I do?
3: Well, probably the most responsible thing you could do is just, again, look for that information, look for the traceability to a farm or to a single producer even. Oftentimes when coffees are that level, they're usually considered to be micro lots, which oftentimes fetch a premium price for, uh, for that particular harvest. So you're more likely to have supported someone in the production side getting a, uh, hopefully the producer themselves, getting a uh, premium for their product. And that is probably one of the easiest steps you can take. Um, of course, there are those those buzzwords. I don't claim to be very educated about how strong the various like fair trade label yeah, is. Yeah, wait, I forgot to ask that. What, yeah.
2: what does fair trade mean? I feel like that's another kind of useless, empty term.
3: Well, <sighs> To say it's totally empty is probably wrong. Just, just to like try to be as diplomatic as possible, sure. we don't use fair trade certified. We do buy some coffees that end up being fair trade certified mm-hmm. at the source because those producer cooperatives are participating in a fair trade certified program, um, but we're not seeking that badge we're not putting Mm -hmm. that badge on our boxes of coffee because we don't think that that is what compels our customers we think that a deeper relationship and a more intimate relationship with the communities is what compels our customers and it really comes down to trust Um, fair trade is in essence a good idea it is about sort of finding that um, baseline price that is that is above commodity to Mm -hmm. to ensure that producers are getting a bit more money for their coffee or for their bananas or whatever, fair trade mm-hmm. items you're consuming. Um, unfortunately, it, as far as I've learned, and I really have learned this from an outsider perspective. So, so don't take this as uh, as, as hard written code. The producers are oftentimes sort of put in the same pool and there's really no, there's nowhere to go up from there. And that is where we sort of don't see eye to eye with fair trade. Is we've we've wanted to celebrate really exceptional producers. Just as I said at the beginning of the interview, we've had a we've had this relationship with a single producer in two competitions in two years. She was the only producer that had her coffee to rise again and win several yeah. positions. That isn't coming by chance. She's lucky. She has great soil. She has a great farm. She she has many factors that she may not have been aware of when she set up her farm there but she's also a very hard worker who has a vision for what she's doing who's who's putting in the best practices possible and staying diligent year after year to those practices which should be awarded and is it unfair for her neighbor who's not doing those things to not get that premium I, I don't think so. I think mm-hmm. that she should be celebrated, and I think her crop should be paid more for it, which isn't something that fair trade, And inform- I don't think fair trade coffees necessarily open that opportunity up.
2: Mm-hmm. I've been speaking with Dylan Edwards, founder of Parlor Coffee. Uh, this is Meant to Beaton. I'm your host, Coralie. Thanks for listening.